Before we begin the formal teaching, I can't miss the opportunity to embarrass Sean, our um, long-term class manager for Monday Night Sitting Group, and just really appreciate what you do to um, create a welcoming space for everybody to come into. I asked Sean, I said, do you need anything from me? Because whenever somebody is holding a space like this, I want to know, do they need any support? He said, well, yes, I do. I said, what do you need? He said, I need a good Dharma talk. (laughs) I thought, no pressure. (laughs) So, forgive me. which actually also reminds me how much I don't want to miss the opportunity to thank all those who volunteered this evening to make this happen. And it'd be great to just see a show of hands of all of the people who generously offered their time and their welcome to everybody who came in here. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, without you all this wouldn't happen. Okay. When I asked for a show of hands of people who were here for the first time at the beginning of our time together, somewhere between 10 or 15 percent of you are here either at Spirit Rock or on a Monday night for the first time. I want to re-welcome you. Although I know deep inside myself that no matter how much I welcome you, the welcome that you give yourself is a hundred times more important as you land here or you land wherever you feel comfortable in the world. So then I'm also curious who has been attending Monday Night Sitting Group for less than a year. Just a show of hands. Less than a year. Okay, so maybe another 5%. Anybody been coming off and on or regularly to Monday nights for more than five years? Oh, slightly larger group. Great. More than 10 years. Interesting. Okay, okay, so we've still got our kind of 5% mark. Anybody been attending on and off for more than 20 years? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for holding it down for us. <laughs> the reason that I ask uh, is, is really the reason why I'm here tonight. I'm here to share my own story, and 2013 happens to be my 20-year anniversary at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And uh, Jack Cornfield, very kindly and generously, when he found out that it was my 20-year anniversary, said, wow, didn't you start on a Monday night here at Spirit Rock? And I said, yes, I did. I remember it like it was yesterday, and I'll tell you about it. And he said, you know, it'd be great for you to teach a Monday night. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you've learned in 20 years. (laughs) Don't worry, we won't be here all night. (laughs) It's the abbreviated version. So that's, that's really why I'm here. And what I understand, even though I've been invited to share the teachings through the lens of my own personal story, is that 
for the teachings to come alive for us, they have to be connected with our own personal story. And that at a certain level, there are themes that run through our personal story which are quite universal, quite archetypal. Uh, so this story is a story about longing, it's a story about pain, it's a story about loss, it's a story about connection, it's a story about hard work, and it's a story about service. And maybe more than anything else, it's a story about somebody who, quite surprisingly, out of nowhere, fell in love with the Dhamma. So I, my hope would be is that in somewhere in the midst of this personal story and, and the way that the teachings will be woven into the story, that there's some piece of it that is your connection you know, to remembering why you first came here, if it's your first time here, giving you a bit of context as to why uh, you might want to come back, hopefully. You know, although this place isn't for everybody, that's also true. So I actually have to rewind further than 20 years ago to a year or two before that to begin the story. Uh, And the story actually begins when I was 17 years old. And I grew up here in Marin County. I grew up in San Rafael. And uh, so having grown up in Marin, those of us who've lived here for a while, we know there's lots of opportunities for spiritual practice. And what I know is that In the West, we're weaving all of our spiritual practices. It's not as if our movement practice is separate from our meditation practice, is separate from the interpersonal uh, growth that we're doing or the therapy that we're doing. It's all woven together. And uh, Marin is, what, a good place to do that. There's a lot of support here. Um, And so... I actually learned how to meditate in a women's circle here in Marin. Came upon it by chance, and it was a small circle of women, maybe 20 women, and they were doing all kinds of things. They were doing uh, Wicca practice, they were doing shamanic journeying, they were doing ritual, they were doing mindfulness of breath meditation. It was all great. And what I got clear on immediately was that even though the ritual was amazing and I loved to sing and all this you know, magical activity going on, what I really needed desperately was the breath meditation. And so I went back after my first time and I said, please teach me the breath meditation. I need that. So in the midst of all that, uh, you know, kind of range of spiritual practice, why did I choose that? There were a number of reasons. And most of them at that time stemmed from the fact that I was in pain. So why was I in pain? Firstly, those of you that have lived in this area for a while maybe remember that there wasn't always a sound wall on the freeway between Central Santa Fe Exit and Terra Linda. You know, that that was actually built and created. And it was a whole huge project. Those of us that have been around long enough to remember what that was like. Um, so when I first got my driver's license, Myself, my car, and that sound wall going north from central San Rafael to Terra Linda had an intimate encounter. It was a serious intimate encounter in that it left me with um, chronic lower back pain for mm, 
you know, probably every day of my life for about a half a dozen years. So there I was, 17 years old, in chronic pain. I didn't even know to call it chronic pain at that time. I just knew that I was uncomfortable in my own physical skin all the time. You know, very difficult. And I know in a community this large, I'm not the only one who has had that experience and who is currently perhaps having that experience. So that was going on. Then there was emotional pain that was going on in my life. And the main place that that stemmed from was uh, my family, so family of origin stuff. And the main place was actually that when I came into adolescence, my mother became chronically ill. And it was a very complex illness. Uh, there was psychological components, there were physical components, but she became quite ill. And she stayed ill most of the time for the last 10 years of her life until she died when I was in my early 20s. So I was one of her primary caregivers along with my father and to say that it was difficult just doesn't even begin to cover it. And I know as I look out at you how many of us, let's just see a show of hands to make it real, how many of us have taken care of somebody or are taking care of somebody that we love who is ill? Just a show of hands. Yeah. Yeah, like a quarter of the room. Um, so that was going on. And then, of course, you know, then there's just developmental issues, cycles of life. So I was in my late teens, and I had the usual teenage angst about social issues and, um, you know, kind of esoteric questions. Isn't there more than this, whatever this was? Um, and this longing to learn from the pain. That life seemed difficult, and there must be some way to learn from that instead of be swept away by that. I had this sense that maybe there was learning available, but I didn't really know how to find it. And I know that some of us in this hall right now are more or less in that young adult stage of life. And that we're always moving through stages of life, and every single stage of life has its esoteric questions and its struggles and its gifts. So what I did was I was meditating in that women's circle and I built a little altar in my home. If you're interested in developing a daily life meditation practice, I would highly recommend, as many of you probably already do, to have a place in your home that's specific for meditation practice, even if it's just a chair in the corner or you know, a special rock from somewhere on a windowsill. I still remember that my first meditation altar had a candle. It had a rock from Mount Lassen, which uh, is one of my spiritual homelands. And I think it had a crystal and maybe a stick of incense. You know, It's not what we put on the altar or the special place we meditate. It's just the reminder so that we have that place and for many of us, having a time of day that we commit to meditating every day is really helpful. This metta or loving kindness retreat that I just finished teaching up the hill, it ended this morning. And part of what we do the last morning of a retreat is talk about daily life practice. And my friend and colleague, Larry Yang, was suggesting that a great daily life practice would be five, five, Five. 
five minutes of meditation for five days a week for five weeks. I thought, that's great. Five minutes of meditation, five days a week for five weeks. It's not too high a bar so that we can actually access our own journey on these teachings. And basically what would happen when I sat down to meditate was that I would sit down, I'd watch my breath for a little while, in, out, in, out. I'd get lost in thought, and then I'd have the thought, I can't do this, and then I would give up, and then I would get up. Nothing special. But I kept going back. I kept going back. And I'm sure many of us have gone through this. And at the time, I was reading a lot of books on meditation. Uh, I just want to call Jack into the room, Jack Cornfield. Still one of my very favorite books from him, whether you're new or been doing this a long time. His old classic, A Path with Heart. No matter how many more books he writes, I just still keep coming back to that one. Yeah, it's brilliant. Brilliant. But I knew that I needed some more instruction. I mean, sitting down, breath goes in, breath goes out, a few minutes, give up, get up, walk away. That only goes for so far. So I knew that this place was here, and I showed up. In a way, I'm cheating a little bit, saying that this is my 20-year anniversary at Spirit Rock, because actually I first showed up in June. But it just so happened that they really needed a teacher in January, so I wanted to be of service. So I showed up here. And I'm really thinking of those of you that it's your first time here as I share this part. Because I had no idea showing up here where it was going to go. None. So I showed up at Spirit Rock. I came with a friend who lived in Woodacre. And she had two kids. And at that time, the Monday Night Kids program ran year-round. And so uh, we showed up here with her two kids and her nephew. And we dropped the kids off uh, at the kids' Dharma class and came in here. I still remember exactly where I sat in the meditation hall. It's actually just about where Kevin Griffin is sitting. And, um, you know, the meditation seemed really long. It was a summer evening, it was warm, the frogs were croaking the way they do in the summer. It's so delightful to meditate here in the summer. If you haven't gone through a whole summer here yet, do come back, you know. Uh, And the meditation just seemed really long. I followed my breath, I thought a lot about the young man sitting next to me, uh, this nephew that I was sort of developing a crush on, true confessions, you know. And I didn't know enough to see the thoughts as a cycle arising and passing. I believed them. I took them seriously. I weaved a whole scenario about how it could turn out. And then the bell rang. So if you've ever done that here, welcome. You belong. (laughs) And so then there was the Dharma talk. And there was some... Uh, older gentleman sitting up front, and he was talking and talking and talking. And he had a very soothing voice. I didn't pay attention to most anything he said, but he had a very soothing voice. I felt very, like, okay being there with him. And, of course, that was Jack Cornfield. You know. 
Jack has had a commitment to this Monday night community for 27 years, before it even landed here on the land. 27 years he has marked his calendar most Monday nights that he's in town to be here with us. That's an incredible commitment. And when we think about what have we done, what have we committed our hearts to for 27 years? Some of us aren't even 27 years old. But you think about it, it's, it's raising our children. It's a career that we're passionate about. Uh, you know, or maybe activist work. Yeah. really have so much appreciation for that level of commitment, no matter what it's for, if our heart is in it. So when I left Monday night, it seemed like a pretty positive experience, but I actually didn't come back for some time. I was working my way through college and started a new relationship, not with the guy I was thinking about sitting next to me in the meditation hall. Um, and, you know, life just took over. The nice thing about a place like Spirit Rock is that it's always here. You can be gone for 20 years and come back, and we will be here. The we might have different faces, and we will have grown older, but we will be here. And there are places like this, of course, all over the planet in every religion and spiritual tradition. They're valuable. So when I returned to Spirit Rock, and specifically returned to Monday nights and started coming regularly, was actually in my early 20s. And the cause of my return was challenge in life. And the particular challenge was that uh, my mother had cancer and she was dying. And I had been taking care of her already for many years with the other illness. And it was just a difficult time. I was still in school. I was still working, I was still caregiving. It was just an exhausting time, the way some cycles of life are. And I distinctly remember one of those times in in the period of time when I was coming to Monday night regularly that it just all seemed too much. And I summoned up my courage and I walked down the center aisle and I timidly approached Jack And I said, Jack, Jack, you know, my mother's dying. What do I do? You know, poor Jack, you know, can you imagine just being here, caring, wanting to be of service? Young woman comes up, Jack, my mother's dying. What do I do? And I still remember what he said. We didn't know each other at all at that time. And what he said to me was he looked me straight in the eye and looked at me with so much kindness and compassion. And he said, do you think that your relationship with your mother is really going to end when she's gone, when she's dead? I was so taken aback by that that I just kind of thanked him and turned around and stumbled away. I wasn't even quite sure how to take that in. Did I think my relationship was going to be over when she was gone? Uh, It became an open question for me as I returned to Spirit Rock week after week. You know, what does this mean? We all have open questions in our practice. A teacher says something, we discover something in meditation, and it's not as if we have the answer. The question itself becomes the teaching. Very important part of practice. I think now, 
when I think back on that moment, I think what Jack saw was that I was rushing into the future with tremendous fear and that I was also holding on to the pain of the past. And he was inviting me into the present, which is the invitation of the practice, with a question that shook me to the point that I woke up to the present moment of this heart and this mind and this situation. So at that particular period of time, I was learning about and practicing with and studying one of the core teachings in this tradition. It's the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And the teaching of the Four Noble Truths was the Buddha's first full expression of his understanding of awakening uh, after his enlightenment. And after his enlightenment, he actually continued sitting under a tree for about seven weeks to just take in, wow, everything is totally different. What now? And then decided, due to a series of events, to make a pilgrimage on foot, barefoot, across the Indian plains to Saranath, where he hooked up with five of his old friends in meditation practice. And there had been a bit of a schism in that friendship because uh, the Buddha started to discover that the way that he'd been practicing meditation was a bit too extreme and was actually about to kill him. And his friends were still very much on that extreme type of meditation bent. And so they came back together. And at first, the friends weren't so sure, but very quickly. Uh, they took in, well, you know, I don't know if you've ever had anybody in your life who's had a transformational experience on any level, even the simplest level, just something changed in them. And you realize they're just not quite the same, even though they're the same as they always were. So his friends sort of saw that, and they said, you know, tell us what you know. Tell us what you've experienced. And what the Buddha said was, my friends, there are these two extremes that ought to be avoided by one who's gone forth on the spiritual path. What two? Well, on one hand is the extreme of kind of overindulgence. You know, fill in your own blank. We all overindulge in some uh, substance or behavior or habitual mind pattern. So on one hand, we have that extreme of overindulgence. And on the other hand, such self-denigration and uh, denial that there isn't a sense of well-being. It's not healthy. There's these two extremes that ought to be avoided. But my friends, he said to his friends, there is this middle way that can be cultivated, that can be experienced individually by the wise. And the wise is us. The wise is not somebody else. And the wise is not everybody except you. You know, although sometimes we think that way. I certainly have. We have the potential for tremendous wisdom and ex- expression of tremendous compassion. We have that potential. No matter what we have done or haven't done in our lives, we have that potential. And of course, we also each have the potential for tremendous confusion and the harm that can arise out of that tremendous confusion. So after the Buddha explained to his friends about the two extremes that ought to be avoided, 
He launched into a further explanation, which we now call the Four Noble Truths. These are four truths that are meant to inspire our noble feeling or noble aspect of ourselves. The word noble doesn't work for you. How about just basic integrity? Or how about some teachings that bring out our ennobling qualities? A verb instead of a noun. So what are they? For some of these, for some of us, this is a very familiar teaching. But it's meant not just to be learned intellectually, but to be lived. Because the awakening comes through living it, not through knowing it. It's very different than the way many of us were raised in the educational system. So I'll just go over them briefly. The first truth is the truth that being a human being, living a life, includes that there's stress, that there's suffering, that things are not always the way we want them. We might call that unsatisfactoriness. You know, so we get what we don't want, we don't get what we do want, we're born, we live a life, if we're lucky, we get old, we're going to get sick, and there's only one way out of this. There's no other option at the end of all this, whenever our end is. You know, so that's not easy. That's actually the first truth is just saying it's not basically, let's be very simple. It's not easy being a human being living a life. Now, this was the most exciting news to me ever when I first heard it when I was in my late teens because what it meant to me was that, number one, the big problem that I thought was my life and all this struggle and all this suffering, everybody has it. And number two, it isn't my fault. It's not our fault. It's just humanness. So first truth, it's not easy to be a human being living a life. We're just, how about human life? It's like this, first truth. Second truth is there's a cause to all this. There's actually a set of causes to all this. And to say it the simplest way I know is that the cause is struggle. We take an illness. How many people have been ill this winter? Just curious, show of hands. Oh, I'm really excited that it's so few of you. (laughs) Okay. How many of you have ever been ill in this life? (laughs) So we're ill, and we go, oh, big problem. You know, I didn't get my flu shot, you know, or I got to see a doctor, or, you know, what am I going to do about my appointments, or this, this big struggle, right? The first noble truth is just have a human body, going to get sick. The second noble truth is when we struggle with it, whatever it is, I didn't get what I wanted. That's the first noble truth. I didn't get what I wanted and I'm going to blame and, and create a big resentment and try to manipulate my way into getting what I want. That's the second noble truth, this struggle. So another way of putting it is pain is guaranteed, suffering is optional. As I read once on a, a calendar, one of those little calendars where you pull off one for every day. It was sometime in March and I just pulled it off and I was like, you know, pain is guaranteed, suffering is optional. Ah, oh, thank you. Dharma is everywhere. And the word dharma, in the simplest sense, means the truth as we understand it, or the nature of things 
And so that's how Dharma could be everywhere. The third noble truth. My favorite explanation of the third noble truth is from Sylvia Borstein, founding teacher here at Spirit Rock. And she says, with all of this humanity and all of this struggle, still, peace is possible. Peace is possible. There is a way out. And the fourth noble truth is the how-to, because there's nothing about this tradition that encourages us to practice in blind faith. What this tradition encourages us, us to do is to practice so that we develop verified faith. We develop the confidence in our own relationship with the truth as we understand it through the practice. So the how-to. The how-to is the Noble Eightfold Path. And the gist of the Noble Eightfold Path falls into three components. And they are basic integrity, uh, learning the tools of the meditation practice, and cultivating wisdom and intention. So basic integrity, the tools of meditation, and wisdom and intention. So wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, wise intention, and wise understanding, the Eightfold Path. And it's to be lived. And it's why when we say peace is possible, it's, it's, not, um, it's not magical thinking. There's actually a path, and we can train in it. And it's so important that we come together like we do on Monday night and train together. Because it's a lot easier to, well, see that other people have been sick. See that other people raise their hands that they've taken care of somebody. See that we're all in it together so that we can celebrate when the practice is flourishing and we can hold each other when it's not. And same with our lives. A center like Spirit Rock is meant to serve us through all life cycles. I love the fact that Jack does baby blessings on Monday nights. And that we bear witness to the next generation. Not just the idea of the next generation, but bear witness through a blessing. And then, of course, we're also starting programs for the whole spectrum. Uh, Kind of moving further in the story. For many years, I was the teacher and director of the family program here. So we serve children ages 0 to 18 and their parents. And then we have programs for people of all ages. And then we have programs for, um, for example, the new Heavenly Messengers program that we're about to start at the retreat center, which is for people of all ages, but acknowledging the aspects that are more guaranteed to come in later years if they haven't come already. Uh, Again, these uh, sickness, death, these. So then there was the moment that my mother actually passed. Uh, And it's vulnerable to talk about this. I don't usually talk about this in public. But it's part of the story here. And it's part of the story about Monday nights here for me. So I'm going to try. The last week of my mom's life, she was in a coma. And I sat with her. 
know, I sat with her. And through the benefit I'd already received from the practice, I assume, because I don't know how I knew to show up the way I show, you know, the way that I did. I certainly don't take credit for it. But I knew how to slow down. This practice teaches us how to slow down and drink in the pregnant moments. I knew to sit quietly with her and talk less. But I also had a sense of when to speak the difficult truths as she lay in that coma that I needed to say before she passed. You know? I remember every day my sister and I would take these long, mindful, slow walks. Actually, long is inaccurate. All we did was walk around the block of my childhood home, but it would take forever because we were walking so slow. And we'd talk a little, we were quiet a little, and we just couldn't go any faster. One foot on the ground. This walking meditation, you know, in life. And the interesting thing about that week of her coma before she passed was that it was extremely painful, of course, but it was extremely magical. And she died on a Sunday morning at sunrise, April 26th. It'll actually be the 15-year anniversary of her death this year. And then there was Monday night. And I hadn't done much after she died. I kind of just was hanging out at home trying to figure out how to be me without a mom on the planet, basically. Although I wouldn't have known how to articulate that at the time. And I realized, oh, it's Monday night. And for some reason, I didn't have my car there. And I had to borrow my dad's car. And it was this big thing. And I was late. And I pulled up to the kiosk out front where you all pulled up today. And and somebody bowed to you, right, and said, welcome to Spirit Rock, and checked you for your carpool. (laughs) Well, I pulled up alone. There was no way I was going to be able to organize a carpool in that moment. And the man bowed to me and said, welcome to Spirit Rock. Um, I see you don't have a carpool. And in that moment, I realized I didn't have $10 to pay for the carpool. And I just burst into tears. And I'm just sitting there at the kiosk just crying. I'm like, my mom just died. My mom just died. I'll never forget how kind this volunteer was with me. He just said, you know, oh, it's okay. Just go on in. Go on in. I'm so glad you're here. Again, I want to thank the volunteers tonight and every one of us that has ever volunteered here or in any other spiritual community or in any other you know, community-based organization because we don't know when we're giving our service that way the impact that we have on somebody. You know, if that person at the kiosk had had a different response, I probably just would have burst into tears, turned around, and driven away because I just couldn't handle it. But that's not what happened, because we're training in something different here. You know, so grateful to that person. But that person's standing in, because every one of us has been that person. And every one of us has been the person archetypally in tears and falling apart. You know? Sometime during this whole process, the retreat center was built. And so it was there, and retreats uh, were just starting. 
And I got this deep intuitive sense during the week that my mother was in a coma while she was dying that actually I was in a retreat environment. I'd never been on a residential retreat, but I got this deep intuitive sense about it. And so I went to Anna Douglas, who is another founding teacher here, and sat down with her and just said, you know, I really want to sit a retreat at Spirit Rock. What do I do? You know, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what I needed to know. And she just looked at me and asked me a little about my story. I told her about my mother. And I'll never forget what she said to me. Her advice was, Heather, you have to learn to love first before you go on retreat. Learn to love again without your mother in the world and then sit a retreat. Now, this was not the advice that I wanted at all. I wanted to know how to get up there next week. But what I understand now that I didn't understand then was that what she was encouraging me to do was to basically not do a spiritual bypass. Spiritual bypass is a term that's coined by um, author and teacher and psychologist John Wellwood. He lives here in Marin County. And it's when we use the spiritual path to avoid or jump over uh, developmental needs, basic needs, emotions, areas of our life that we think aren't spiritual, we spiritually bypass. Now, those of us that have been on the spiritual path in any tradition for a while, we've all done this. We do it in little moments, we can do it in big cycles, so there's no judgment. But it's important to know that as our practice matures, we can keep on the lookout for what we're leaving out, what we're jumping into too quickly, which is what I was doing. And so what I did was I continued therapy, um, I explored loving myself and others, I started training in the loving-kindness practice, the Pali word for which is metta. It's translated as loving-kindness, but a better translation is basic friendliness. It's really the warm, open, friendly heart that meets ourselves, each other, the world. And, you know, this is the topic now that I've just been teaching on with my colleagues, with all of those wonderful practitioners for a week. It's amazing how the cycles go, right? So I started training in that, and I went on my first retreat. It was a New Year's retreat. And then immediately I went on another retreat. It was the first long retreat here at Spirit Rock. The first year of the long retreat here was six weeks, not two months. I signed up for three weeks, and day five of the retreat, I begged my teachers to let me stay for the whole six weeks because I knew I needed it. Fortunately, they were willing to let me do that. And I learned a lot more on those early years of retreats about loving-kindness practice. So I just want to talk a little bit more about it because to me, the two core teachings that felt important to share are the Four Noble Truths and the Loving Kindness. So here's one of many definitions of loving kindness. It's from Venerable, Venerable Buddha and he's a monastic in India. He was the former president of the Mahabodhi Society in India. In India. He said, true metta is devoid of self-interest. It evokes within a warm-hearted feeling of friendship, sympathy, and love, and grows boundless from practice 
and overcomes all social, religious, racial, political, and economic barriers. Metta is indeed a universal, unselfing, and all-embracing love. One of the traditional metaphors that's used to describe the invitation of loving-kindness practice is just as the sun sheds its rays on all without distinction, so too the mind and heart of loving-kindness shed its rays of well-wishing and warmth on all without distinction. It's not as if the sun shines on everyone but me. That's not how it works. And that's a full expression of metta or loving-kindness. But it doesn't start there. It doesn't start there. In the metta retreat that just happened up the hill, we started by wishing well to ourselves and then expanded to wishing well to those we hold dear and then continued to expand to what we lovingly call familiar strangers in our life. We spent a whole day on metta for the difficult person, which was a very popular uh, topic on this retreat and every metta retreat I've ever taught, because we all have the difficult person in our lives. They change faces over the years, and sadly, we, of course, are somebody else's difficult person. So we need to work with this. And I also want to call in Sylvia Borstein. Um, Again, another founding teacher here at Spirit Rock. And she was the one who first taught me the loving-kindness practice, taught me the phrases, may I be protected and safe. May I be happy. May I be healthy and strong. May I live with ease. She, of course, sings her metaphrases to herself, so it turns into, may I be protected and safe, may I be contented and pleased, may my body be strong, may I live life with ease. (laughs) Just in case you were taking it too seriously. I was encouraging the retreatants at the end of the retreat that love to sing to just go up on the hill and sing their metaphrases. So she taught me the loving-kindness practice, and then many years later, I had the privilege of her teaching me to teach the loving-kindness practice. Uh, The same way as Jack was my first meditation teacher, and then years later, I had the privilege of having him train me to teach the insight meditation that he had first taught me as a student. I'm just calling a quote from Sylvia. This is called Earthrise from the Moon, and it's kind of one of her, her favorite photos. She says, my favorite photo is Earthrise as seen from the moon. It's perfect. A great blue and green ball floating in black, vast black space, hanging right there in its orbit. From that vantage point, the scene on Earth is awesome. Creatures being born other ones dying, plants blooming on one side, plants withering on the other, snow snowing, winds blowing, volcanoes erupting, earthquakes shivering, people talking, music playing. From the moon view, it's an incredible cosmic drama. From our usual view, inside the drama, looking up at the moon, it's a different story. 
it changes from the drama to my drama, and it gets to be a problem. If you're far enough away, it's not your story. It's one and one of the almost, oh, it's interesting, it says it's one of the six and a half billion stories. Now, of course, it's seven billion stories. Remembering these two views simultaneously is a great challenge. And I would add a great opportunity. It's interesting, this meta retreat was the first meta retreat that Sylvia wasn't there teaching in the last 12 years. And, uh, you know, these cycles. It's like I came in, I met her, she taught me, I was so grateful, she trained me. We were laughing, the teachers at the end of this retreat. We said, well, you know, mom wasn't here this retreat. We didn't have any adult supervision. (laughs) But we did fine. And the retreatants did great. And it's like this feeling of, oh, we all take our turns in the wisdom seat. And just like she's talking about with that story of the moon, I'm very clear on the fact that even though the story I'm telling you is intensely personal, it's two views. It's my story, but it's actually our story. I couldn't tell it if I wasn't resting in those two views. It would be too personal. After that first long retreat at Spirit Rock, I was so filled with gratitude. My life had actually changed. I just haven't been quite the same. And of course, that was just the beginning of the transformation. It's not like it stopped there. But I was really filled with gratitude, and so I wanted to give back. I had just finished school. My financial resources were non-existent, but I had a lot of time. So I called the volunteer coordinator, and I said, you know, I can never pay back what I've been given. And I don't have any money to offer, but I do have some time. You probably can't use me. I'm a classroom teacher, because that's what I was trained in, is classroom teaching. My favorite is kindergarten through third grade. And um, she said, oh, we can use use you. We have a family program. Come volunteer. I was so excited. Little did I know I was going to be running that program for 10 years. Little did I know. What a privilege. Those families, they practice so hard. You know, on-the-ground Dharma practice doesn't look like much, but it's deep. It's deep. And so I found myself teaching the same Monday night kids class that I dropped those two kids off my very first Monday night here. And now we don't have Monday nights, except in the summer, because the Bay Area family programs have birthed and grown to the point that you can go down to the South Bay or the East Bay or other places in Marin at a better time for young children to learn about ringing a bell and taking a breath or passing the talking stick and speaking the truth. And so, actually, the need isn't as great for a very late-night kids' class anymore. We do it in the summer. And so, if you come in the summer and you hear the children out screaming and laughing and playing, I want to tell you what they're doing. They're playing metatag. And after we light candles and would say blessings and pass the talking stick and speak our truth, we needed to play games. They're kids. So we'd go out on the road and play metatag. 
A meta tag is freeze tag, except to unfreeze somebody, you have to say a loving kindness phrase. So that's why you hear them yelling. They're frozen and their friend is going up and tagging them and saying, may you be happy. And then somebody else is frozen and someone comes up and tags them and says, may you be peaceful. And then their all-time favorite was, may you have chocolate cake. <laughs> I don't know what it was with them with chocolate cake. I try to explain to them, really, it's about qualities of mind and heart, but they just want a chocolate cake. You know, first noble truth. We want what we want. And if we don't get it, and we struggle, suffering. So, you know, we're all in process. We're all in process. When I came here at age 18, so now you don't need to wonder how old I am anymore. When I came here at age 18, on a Monday night, on a beautiful summer evening, I had no idea about really much of anything. I had no idea that I would ever come back. I had no idea this was going to become my spiritual home. I had no idea that the practice would penetra- could penetrate a life so deeply that nothing was left out, and that when something is left out, that's held with tremendous kindness and compassion. I didn't know any of that. And I certainly didn't know that I was going to be sitting here, you know, (laughs) talking to you all 20 years later. There's a couple of us here that are really the first homegrown Dharma teachers of Spirit Rock. And I say that because for myself, I did all my training here. I didn't go to Asia until very recently. I wanted to dive deeply into one tradition and I wanted to do it here in a lay community where I felt safe and at home and people knew me and I knew them. And I very much look forward and I can feel them coming the future homegrown Dharma teachers. I see them growing up in the teen program, you know, in the teen retreats that I've been teaching for ten year, the last 10 years over New Year's. 15 to 19-year-olds, 30-minute periods of silent sitting and walking meditation. Yes, it can be done. <laughs> We're growing into a future that we can't imagine, and it takes every one of us who feels at home here and it feels at home in the Dharma to create that future. I feel so grateful that we're moving together, you know, with our tremendous diversity, which makes us stronger and more and more as one body. So that's what I have to offer for our reflection this evening. I do thank you quite deeply for the kindness of your attention. And I believe that in the tradition of Monday nights, we will end with a chant. And we will end with a chant that Jack loves to chant. It's Namo. Namo is the root of namaste. Namaste means the wisdom in me acknowledges or bows to the wisdom in you. And we chant it nine times. Does Jack, like, 
maybe after we chanted it three or four times, does Jack still chime in, add harmony? Yeah. Oh, I love it that he still does that. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's so reassuring to have these ridiculously simple traditions, you know, that we can just kind of land our hat on week after week, month after month, year after year. He did that 20 years ago, my first Monday night, third time we chanted it, add harmony. You know? So we will do that. We will do that. And of course, if chanting isn't your thing, you're part of the chant just by being part of the presence in the room. And if you feel like you can't sing, that is harmony. Okay? <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> okay. Namo. Taking a breath and drinking it in. And on the exhale, sending that wish of kindness and connection to all beings. here in your carpool, please turn right. And if there's somebody who could offer somebody a ride to Berkeley, that would be hugely generous. And she will be waiting up here knowing that because we're in community, she will get home tonight. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.